Well, I don't think it'd be too much of an overstatement to say the meaning of life at its basic level could be found in relationships. Now, one might argue that food and shelter and clothing and those essentials are necessary for life, but just having a pulse, like just being on life support, uh, does not make you a full, like fully thriving human being. Um, so why are relationships so absolutely important for our identity as humans? Well, the simplest answer is because we as humans are made in God's image, and the God of the Bible is a relationship. He exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we're created to be in relationship with God and with each other. In fact, uh, a teacher of mine, Daryl Johnson, is fond of saying, at the center of the universe is a relationship. Now, taken negatively, it's interesting that when our human ancestors, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they rebelled against God, what happened initially was a breaking of four great relationships. That shows you how vital relationships are. Like the first thing that gets broken is relationship. And those four relationships are human beings, our, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, our relationship with the created order. Like I'm pretty sure that's when spiders were invented by God because they, you know, Anyway, just our, it all got screwed up. And then our relationships with ourselves. Um, it, that plays out all the time in an overemphasized sense of, uh, of pride. We puff ourselves up or, or an overactive sense of shame. Uh, and we tend to be on one of those sides of the spectrum uh, and usually on both sides depending on the given day. So relationships, on the one hand, are the very thing we're created for, and on the other hand, they're the very thing that we're perpetually struggling with, at least with somebody in our life. Now, throughout the Bible, there are three main ways. I don't even know. There's probably more, but I'm going to say three because it's easier to preach that way. But anyway, the three main ways that we learn about relationships. One is in the Bible, we can read that and we can discern some ideals. For example, we learn that God created human beings as men and women in his image. We're created to be his representatives on earth. We are to live in harmony with God and with each other and with creative, benevolent authority over creation. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to love our enemies we're to have fidelity in marriage, and our word should be so true that we don't need contracts and handshakes and lawyers. So the Bible reveals some relational ideals. Those are like the high bar, how it's supposed to be. And maybe even not even to love our enemies. Maybe we wouldn't have enemies if the ideal were really ideally lived out. Okay? So the second way we learn about relationships in the Bible is through narrative which describes real examples of people interacting with each other and interacting with God. Ideals are the bullseye on the target. Narrative describes all of us, like all our arrows missing the bullseye all over the place, sometimes not even hitting the target. Biblical narrative is rarely neat and tidy. It doesn't offer us principles for how to li live a better life or 10 steps to a new you. Narrative is life in the trenches, and it offers us joys and sorrows, triumphs and failures of real-life relationships. Okay, so we've got one, ideals that we can discern from the Bible. Two, there's the narrative, or it's just like 
stuff, real people actually doing real things and screwing it up and God interacting and all that. So that's the second way. And the third way we can learn about relationships from Scripture is law. In His grace and mercy, God gave laws to meet us in the muddled middle where ideals and reality of life kind of mix together. Laws meet at the intersection of ideals and for reals of life. So for example, God's ideal for people is to love one another, right? Uh, The reality, though, in the ancient world when the Old Testament was written is that tribal conflicts often resulted in endless uh, cycles of violence perpetuated by revenge. You accidentally kill my cow when you're out hunting. It was behind some bushes and you shot at it. Well, I'm going to kill two of your cows. Well, I'm going to kill your son. Well, I'm going to kill your whole family. Well, And this is the the typical kind of way this this stuff would go. God's will for uh, his ideal uh, human beings is to love one another. The reality is that these cycles of violence. So God brings in a law, and through his prophets and different leaders in Israel's history, he brings in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is absolutely better than an eye for a, a, a hangnail and uh, your child's life because you broke my arm, and you know, this escalating violence. So back then, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a law that was actually a real uh, grace, and it put a cap on violence spinning out of control. God's will, his ideal for humans, is not an eye for an eye. That was just a pastoral intervention to meet people where they really were. It's kind of like putting a band-aid or a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. But when God initiated his rescue plan by sending the incarnate Jesus, two things happened. First, we received revelation of the ethics behind the law. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus pulls back the law to reveal God's heart behind that law. And there we see his desire is for us to love one another. To pray for those who persecute us. Second, we receive power from Jesus to actually live out those godly ethics. By placing our faith in Jesus and remaining in him, we receive power to live a new kind of life. By the way, that's part of the gospel. The good news is not only that our sin is forgiven and that we have eternal life someday. The good news is that you can actually have such a good life you'd want to live it eternally. Now, I've gone to some lengths here, haven't I, just to introduce what I think is the backdrop, the assumption Paul has about Christians. And it's the assumption that Paul is dealing with with the Corinthian church. On the one hand, Paul knows the type of life available to those who are in Christ, the ideals. And on the other hand, he's constantly um, dealing with the for reals of life. Pastors, I'm sorry, (laughs) preachers preach biblical ideals. So when I'm up here, I try and preach what the Bible says. But right after this sermon, I step down and we have dinner, and I meet with you throughout the week oftentimes, and that's when I pastor. Preachers preach ideals, pastors pastor in the real. And there's a meeting of the two that has to happen. Paul preaches that in Christ we're new creations, but he ministers in the reality that people are in process, right? 
So far, we've seen Paul ministering in relational trenches. The Corinthian church was living in the nitty-gritty for reals of trying to follow Jesus in a world where they're deeply influenced by their culture. One man was having an affair with his stepmother, and the church wasn't doing anything about it. Paul had to remember this ideal. How are we going to deal with this for real? Another set of brothers were defaming each other's names. Here are brothers in Christ taking their squabbles to secular court where in public they're tearing each other down. Those two dudes are then supposed to worship together on Sunday? That's going to destroy the church, Paul says. No. And then there's the usual suspects of greed and premarital sex and extramarital sex and same-sex sex and young men going to prostitutes and drunkenness and life in the real world. Paul deals with these things in 1 Corinthians 6. And this evening, we're going to start 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a new section in Paul's letter, and I'm going to read it just now. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say as way of concession, not a command. Lord, you are leading us into, uh, well, yet again, into the waters of, um, of a deeply intimate place in our lives, um, in the realm of sex and marriage and you and how you fit in all that and Lord, we just confess, um, yeah, it sometimes feels weird to talk about these things, and it, it feels weird to read someone from 2,000 years ago with different language, um, different assumptions, and so Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, and most of all, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what it is you want us to hear from you, how it is you want us to live, and who it is you want us to be. We need your help with that. Amen. You may be seated. So, you read that out loud and it sounds really crazy. So, just suspend all of, I'm going to try and deal with everything, um, which is why I started this section with just six verses. Um, Next week, we're going to get crazy. We're going to get a lot of verses because I'll have laid the groundwork. But he begins this new section with the words, Now, concerning these things you wrote. When you read all of chapter 7 together in one sitting, you realize that Paul is addressing several questions or statements that the Corinthians were making with regard to relationships. He has proclaimed the Christian ideal for relationships when he first planted the church, right? So he's preaching when he plants the church. He then stays with them for a period of time, and then he goes away to check on other churches. Now, 18 months later, after Paul plants the church and preaches his ideals about what it means to follow Jesus, he starts to hear reports. Some are oral reports from Chloe's people. 
and he has received some kind of written correspondence, at least one letter from the Corinthians, asking him some questions and making some statements. And what we're about to enter into is Paul's response to the written correspondence. Weird thing is, we don't have a copy of that. So we are like playing that game telephone where you're only hearing one side of the conversation. The only side of the conversation we have is Paul's response to the Corinthians. Now, in this passage, Paul challenges the Corinthian saying, or a maxim, it was kind of like a colloquial saying, that went something like this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the English translators, I think, are a little uptight about sex. Because in Greek, it's not, so euf- it's not a euphemism like that. Here's what it really says. It is good for a man not to have sex with his wife. That was their saying. No, what a change of tack. In chapter 6, Paul is dealing with parts of the Corinthian church who were too loose with their sexual morals. They had such a low view of the body that they thought they could have sex with whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted. And he had to remind them that, hey, you know what? Your bodies are not your own. But in Christ, the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So how then can you, a temple of the Holy Spirit, go and like connect yourself in an intimate way with a prostitute or an extramarital affair or a premarital affair? See, this is what Paul is saying to the people whose values were too loose. Here Paul is dealing with people in that same church who are too strict And isn't that just like us? Like, that's like any church. There's some people who are a little more uptight about certain things, and then there's other people who are on the other end of the spectrum. We either don't want any boundaries at all, or we try and invent artificial boundaries that God never put on us in the first place so that we can feel extra super holy. It is so hard for some reason for us just to be stinking healthy. It really is. It's like... uh, we're not grown up enough for that yet. I mean, I, I need more boundaries, or I just want to do away with the boundaries. Anyway, apparently, there's this group in the Corinthian church that were teaching a false ideal, not a godly ideal, but a false ideal of sexual abstinence within marriage. This is talking about married people. It's believed by many scholars that Within the Corinthian church, some people believed that they were so spiritual that they no longer needed the things of the flesh. Sir, you, you, you got to feed the body a little bit to keep it going, but we are so beyond the things of the flesh. Right? Now, in his letter to, the, uh, to Timothy, for example, Paul warns that some false teachers would claim true followers of Jesus wouldn't eat certain foods, wouldn't get married, or enjoy the God-given pleasures of life. Now, Paul clearly says in 1 in Timothy 4 that every good thing is from God. And if good things are accepted with thanksgiving from God, then they should not be rejected. The problem with the Corinthian view is twofold. First, they don't have a biblical view of the body. The human body was created by God, and God called our bodies very good. The body is created sexual, and within the bounds of marriage, sex is not only natural, it's good. It is a gift. It is more than procreation. It is physical connection. It is emotional connection. It is psychological connection and spiritual connection all wrapped up 
in one. And it needs to be said that sex is a gift of pleasure from God as well. The Corinthians had a screwed up view of sex. They were either too loose or too uptight, but Paul wants to bring a pastoral voice into those two extremes. And frankly, I'm really glad he does. This isn't like a common topic to talk about sex this way in the Bible. I wish I had heard more about biblical sex from respected pastors and teachers when I was growing up. Actually, when I was growing up, I would think that was kind of weird. But looking back on it, I wish there was more health on those subjects. Because you know what happens when you're not taught God's view of sex? You're going to learn it from other places. You're going to learn it from other places. You learn about it from friends who have older siblings. You learn about it from magazines and TV shows and movies and the internet. And if you're learning from sex, uh, just mainstream media, if you're just watching TV, you're going to get mixed messages. Sex sells cars and potato chips on the one hand, but it's portrayed as dirty and secretive on the other hand. So, just a word to parents, let's make sure we don't make sex a dirty topic or an embarrassing topic in our homes. Let's make sure that we're having appropriate conversations with our kids, because if we don't, they will. Uh, how, how, if we don't have these conversations, how will they critique the information that they will definitely be getting from other sources? It's not if they get it from other sources. Right, and if you're a mentor to someone, like, you know, discipleship group, or, you know, you, you've got some young person that you're under your wing, or even a peer, ask those hard questions. I always respected the mentors who would ask me about sex, about pornography, about how I'm doing, because let's not pretend that sex isn't one of, like, the biggest parts of our body. If we're not doing it, we're thinking about it a lot, and it's everywhere, and so let's not pretend it's not part of our discipleship. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about sex from the perspective of singles, and we talked about it a few weeks ago from the perspective of same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. This evening, our text is centered on married, uh, sex within marriage. So if you're non-married, I hope you find some value in this message for a couple reasons. One, you might want to get married someday, and you might find it helpful to have a healthy view of of sexuality from God's perspective. Second, you may be committed to singleness and celibacy. That is awesome. Please pray for your married brothers and sisters, because as you'll see, we need some serious help too. Okay, so back to the body. Paul is confronting the false view that the body is somehow impure, and therefore sex should be avoided for the super spiritual people who want to really follow Jesus. But what that view fails to account for is the fact that God created sex. He created it to feel good. It's okay that it feels good. Um, By the way, the church at different points have taught you should only have sex if you're trying to have a child. Uh, And the sinful part is the feel-good part. Rubbish. Okay, anyway. Um, He created sex as a gift to share and to rejoice in between a man and a woman in marriage. So Paul says to them about this statement, no. You're asking for trouble. Sex and marriage is a good thing, unless you're unable for, you know, medical reason or psychological reason or whatever. Uh, But each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, Let me pause for a moment and address a verse that has been grossly misunderstood. I have heard it taught 
that what Paul is saying is that every man and every woman should get married. Like, not to each other, but that everyone should get married eventually in their life. Um, that each man should have a wife, each woman should have a husband. Because of temptation, nobody can handle it if they're not married. Okay? That interpretation of this passage is plain wrong. And please hear me, you know me as a preacher, that when there are multiple views on something that have value or scholars are divided on something, I usually present the main orthodox sides of things and say, you're grown-ups, you decide. Here's the views, right? But that interpretation is just wrong, and it matters because this passage has been used to make non-married people feel inferior and to feel incomplete and like second-class citizens. At the time of writing this letter, Paul himself is not married, people. And he even like says, hey, I wish you guys were kind of like me. Like, there's a lot of benefits to not being married. So what does this passage teach? In Greek, it's actually crystal clear. The term to have a husband or to have a wife is just a euphemism for to have sex with. So to be explicit, the passage would literally be, each man should have sex with his wife. Each woman should have sex with her husband. Okay, it's talking to people who are already married. Okay. Paul continues, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I've got to pause on this because this is some really radical stuff. First, the negative I just need to bring to light. This passage has been used by men and at times supported by the church to wrongly teach that a woman should consent to sex against her will anytime he wants to. This passage has been used to condone nothing short of marital rape and sexual abuse. Married or not, no means no. We have no right to take Paul's pastoral advice to these Corinthians and to turn it into a license for an abuse. So no, none of you dudes should be going home tonight and saying, yeah, you heard what Chris said. Now, the positive. Let's take a moment to try and explain how progressive Paul was. It is almost inconceivable to believe how misogynistic this culture in ancient Rome and ancient Greece was. Let me just quote one horrible quote that was commonly believed in this time period. This is a non-Jewish quote, by the way. This would not fly in Jewish or Christian communities, but this is like mainstream Roman Greek thought. Women are the worst plague Zeus created. The rights of women only existed in relation to how they would affect their father or their husband. So you could pretty much do anything you wanted to a woman, but if you tarnished her and she was going to have some monetary value to a husband or to a, a father, then you were in trouble. Or you could do anything to a woman, but if harming her in any way would bring shame upon the man's family name, then you were in trouble. But other than that, no big deal. Women were to be dutiful to their husbands. They were to be sexually faithful in marriage and any adulterous behavior required, wasn't optional, required the man to divorce her. 
Husbands, on the other hand, were nearly expected to cheat on their wives. It was completely legal for husbands to have affairs with other women as long as those other women were not married to the same class or higher-ranking class uh, or engaged to a higher-ranking class. Plutarch was a well-known first-century Greek biographer and lay philosopher, and we have a copy of this letter that he wrote to two young friends who who were getting married, and it's titled, Advice to the Bride and Groom. I'm a man, and it makes me want to puke. Um, It's so patronizing. It's about, like, how the wife should not spend too much money on fashion, and how when she furnishes the new house, you know, she ought to be frugal. And then it, then he writes to this young bride how, now there's going to be times when your husband will, will stray, but you should see this as a positive thing, that he releases his passions in other places and gives you uh, children and love. I mean, it, it just is mind-blowing, the thought process and the cultural realm that Paul's writing to. And Plutarch represents a common cultural view of Roman and Greek marriage. Woman has no rights. Man is the king of the home. Now, suspend that up here and look at what Paul is saying. The man is to give himself sexually to his wife. The husband's body is not his own. It belongs under the authority of the wife. That means he is not free to give his body to another It's under her authority. Paul is the original Christian feminist after Jesus. He gets a bad rap because we read him from our point of view, but he is radically flying in the face of their culture. Makes me think of Ephesians 5.21 that Keith read earlier, where Paul is talking to the church about mutual submission. Men to women, women to men. He is utterly redefining marriage in Christ. And notice that the emphasis in this whole passage is not on you getting your needs met. It's not on you exercising your rights. The emphasis is on what you can give to your spouse. Your body is not your own. You are to use it to bring pleasure to your spouse. When our ancestors rebelled in the Garden of Eden, they disobeyed God because they began to believe the lie that the Satan put in their minds, the accuser. And that lie basically is, does God really have your best interests in mind? Think of what you could be and do if you had that fruit. And from that point on, we've been skeptical of God. We've been skeptical of one another. Um, Even in the healthiest marriages I've seen, there's a tendency sometimes uh, to not to want to overgive because you might get had, you might get taken advantage of. We hedge our bets. We're careful not to overextend. But in marriage, we are bound to fail if we do not initiate generosity. And in sex, if we constantly wait for the other to initiate or for the other to do what we want, we're going to be left disappointed. So for you marrieds out there, if you are unsatisfied with some part of your sexual life with your husband or wife, there are a couple things you can try. And I'm keeping this to two, so this isn't like sex therapy from the pulpit. That would be weird. But this is right out of this passage, I think. First, in a respectful way, tell your spouse 
your desire, what it is that you're desiring. Most of us have had such horrible exposure to sex, and even in marriage, I find that people are kind of uncomfortable talking about it, but your spouse, newsflash, cannot meet expectations that they don't know exist. When was the last time you you and your spouse had a constructive conversation about sex? It's funny, it's one of the things that is like really important, but most people don't talk about it very much because it's awkward. Because we've been taught growing up that it's dirty and we have our secrets and these kind of things, right? But in Christ, we need to bring light onto this beautiful thing. So have a talk about it. Second, sometimes there's a deadlock and we are so broken and so scared that we're waiting for the other person to make a move. The surest way to convince your spouse that it is safe for them to be vulnerable is for you to be vulnerable first. That's the extent of what I'm going to say here. Paul commands married couples not to deprive one another of sexual intimacy. But in talking to those in the Corinthian congregation, who are struggling with seeing sex as an important part of their life in Christ, he makes a pastoral concession. So these people were really thinking that to be closer to God, they shouldn't have sex within marriage. He's like, no, that's wrong. But to expect you to quit your thinking cold turkey is not a very realistic pastoral thing to do. So I'll tell you what, here's a concession. Maybe if you both agree... Some scholars think this was coming from the wife who was saying, like, well, we shouldn't do this. And, the, 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 you know, the guys were like, wait, that's a bad idea. Like, so he says, if you both agree to, on sexual abstinence for a time period, maybe for prayer or you go on a retreat or something like that, to be closer to God, fine. I don't command that. It's a concession to you. But come back together quickly. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get tempted by Satan. Now, on the surface, this passage is about sex. But underlying all of this is the reality that is a re- it's really about dying to self. Everything a Christian does, whether it's in marriage or friendship, vocation, creative outlets, it's all an exercise in slowly dying to my lordship and recognizing his lordship. The Lord we follow is the one who initiated a relationship with us by becoming one of us, consider that. The Lord we worship is the one who first loved us before we loved him. Again, he initiates. The king of the universe is the one who gave up rights over his body for his bride, the church. Jesus gave up his body to the cross so that we might be made new and clean so that the church might be his bride. That is Paul's basis for this passage. And as we now enter into this time of of healing prayer, I invite you to come. Like, if you've got physical stuff you want uh, healing for, this is the time to come. But also, in light of this passage, uh, maybe you'd like prayer about the tension between being ideal, like you hear these ideals, and living in the real. Like, I know that I want to fully give myself, but... I'm self-serving, and I'm really afraid, and I'm skeptical that if I step out, I am going to get burned. I need Holy Spirit help. Maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's an old wound that has shaken our trust. And I want to emphasize that. You know, I've been 
preaching again about ideals, and I said something earlier about, well, sometimes you have to be the vulnerable one first. I did not take into account, which I am doing now, that some of us have deep wounds, that we have been burned so badly before, that that's, and it will take a miracle for us to come out of the shell. And um, maybe tonight could be one step in that healing process, because that's a reality that many of us carry. Lord, uh, we want to meet so badly with you, not for the emotional experience, but because we know that where you are, there is health, and there is healing, and there's new life. So Lord, I pray for me and my brothers and sisters as we uh, sit in this space, in this time for prayer. Uh, Lord, touch us, whether we come forward to these kneeling benches or we sit in silent meditation, whether we're praying for someone else uh, or praying together in a pew. Um, we desperately, desperately need you, Lord. Amen.